1: Block talk radio.
2: Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed it's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also, a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted
0: Hart. And welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, we are simulcasting over on Facebook today, uh, so you can find us at facebook.com forward slash Hart. Um, You can also ask us questions over in the chat room. I see some folks over there, so feel free to ask questions there. Uh, Or you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Over here on page one, it is my pleasure to welcome here to the nonprofit coach, uh, Julieta Mendez. Uh, She is the manager of programs for social sector outreach at the Foundation Center. And welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Julieta.
1: Hello, Ted. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm very excited. Lietta, I understand you
0: have some updates for us from the Foundation Center and wanted to share with us some information about, uh, is it the Talent Philanthropy Project?
1: Uh, It's more about our professional development and training programs here at Foundation Center. Um, Terrific. Take it away. uh, Sure. Thank you. Uh, Most people know us here as an institution of research, uh, but uh, we are also one of the leaders in providing Uh, professional development and capacity building courses uh, to help individuals advance in their careers in the social sector. Um, In fact, one of our goals is to uh, develop the talent that will strengthen the effectiveness of the social sector. Um, And we commit to this because um, it is a little-known fact that current resources for professional development uh, do not meet the current gaps and growing demand for social sector talent. And the study that you just mentioned, um, Ted, uh, it was actually conducted by one of our colleagues in the field, who you may know very well, Rusty Stahl, uh, in mm-hmm. uh, the Talent Philanthropy Project, and through that, um, he found that about a thousand of the larger uh, foundations were allocating less than 1%, uh, specifically 0.8% of their total 2011 awards uh, towards professional development for the social sector. And that was already a decrease from 1.4% in 2004. So um, at the same time that we're seeing this decrease in professional development, we're also seeing a growing demand of skill-building opportunities among social sector professionals. Um, In 2014, for example, um, there was another survey that indicated that social sector leaders perceived themselves and their peers um, to be lacking in skills necessary for the social sector. So Foundation Uh. Center, uh, our response to this is uh, to design uh, a learning model uh, focused on fundraising, uh, which is really our area of expertise: uh, organizational sustainability and leadership and management. Um, so, whenever you know folks in the social sector need assistance with either prospect research, uh, with putting together a fundraising plan, or developing a proposal, or or if they want to understand um, how to best build relationships with funders, they come to the Foundation Center. They come to us, um, and we have found that social sector professionals are, you know. Are incredibly busy individuals of course many of many of us wear at least two different hats in the organization or you know many of them are also running one-man shows Um, so our learning model is intentionally flexible and learner centric in its content and delivery format so that we're able to meet people where they are um, to increase responsiveness and engagement that will hopefully lead to learning outcomes um, so specifically, the, the types of trainings that we offer are, are classes both in person and online. Uh, our classes range from uh, one-hour introductory courses t- uh, to three-day intensive trainings. Uh, one of our signature trainings is the Proposal Writing Boot Camp, a three-day workshop that will um, teach participants um, the essentials for proposal writing, budgeting, um, and will also provide insider tips on what foundations are looking for Um, and how they approach the proposal review process, and we've been teaching that for over 10 years now. Um, At the end of the three days, participants come away with an actual letter of inquiry to submit to a potential funder, and we have a a series of those boot camps coming up in June um, in our offices here in New York, uh, San Francisco, and also in uh, Cleveland. Um, And for those who are too busy to come to a class in person, we also offer self-paced learning online. Uh, We have designed curriculum to guide the participant through the learning process so that he or she can complete the course at their own pace and time. Um, I should also add that most of our courses qualify for CFRE education credits. Um, As you well know, Ted, the CFRE stands for uh, Certified Fundraising Executives, and it is a credential that measures a fundraising professional's current practice. Right. Julieta, I'm just going to let you
0: know. that we post, we're posting on Facebook, your proposal writing boot camp link, so anyone who's looking for that oh, uh, can find Thank us uh, right at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart.
1: Thank you. And another great place to go would also is also uh, grantspace.org uh, slash training, uh, and that's where folks can find the entire menu of training uh, programs that we offer. Um, I'll just add one more here, uh, the uh, um, online uh, webinars um, that we also deliver. Uh, we invite experts from around the country and the world to speak on a diverse range of topics that are impacting the social sector. Uh, so this month, on May 16th, uh, we have invited Ideaware, uh to talk about how best to choose a donor management system, um, which is essential, as you know, to any, um, for any organization that is trying to embark on, on fundraising. Uh, that's yes, great. Did you?
0: We're posting, yes. we're, we've just posted the grantspace.org forward slash training for you as well.
1: Thank you so much. Um, and then on May 23rd, we have another lecture on how to build and sustain funder connections. This is also a webinar, so uh, folks can tune in um, online as well. And all of our webinars are anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes long. Um, okay. I'll end by, by just uh, by saying that, uh, you know, people can... Um, Access all of our information through the links that you have just posted on Facebook, uh, grantspace.org slash training. Um, We also have five regional offices that are located um, around the country in San Francisco, Cleveland, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and of course our main office here in New York. Uh, and we welcome the public to come visit us here anytime. Uh, they w- they will have access to all of our trainings and events. Uh, they will also have free access to our online research tools. Uh, one of our signature tools being uh, Foundation Directory Online, which is what um, you can use to do uh, prospect research for for fundraising. Um, and then of course we are also we have partners all over the country, um, about 450 partners uh, around the country. Uh, that we call the uh, Foundation Center Information Network. Uh, we have at least one partner in every state and these are anywhere from uh, public libraries to uh, university libraries as well as uh, other community foundations and nonprofit resource centers that provide um, our uh, introductory courses and access to all of our online research tools uh, for free as well. So. Access, as you know, is it's something that's very important for foundation center, and, and we really like to put our information out there.
0: That's terrific. Um, so very that, important training. Yes.
1: Absolutely, Ted. And uh, so with that said, I just want to uh, personally invite everyone to come to one of our main locations uh, and take part in one of our introductory courses or special programs, which are mostly free to the public so they can get a taste for the programming that we coordinate for them and uh, I can also be reached uh, via Twitter if anybody wants to connect with me uh, my handle is at miss J Mendes, Uh, and the Foundation Center of course also has uh, a handle Uh, uh, depending on where you are you can look us up Uh, we are uh, New York New York has its own handle uh, at FDN Center is the best way to, to reach us um, through Twitter as well. Okay?
0: Terrific. Um, well, Julieta Mendes, and that is all I have so for much today,
1: much yes. For,
0: yeah, well, it's, it, that's very important information, and we can't thank you enough uh, for being our guest here on the, the Nonprofit Coach and bringing us uh, the updates from the Foundation Center.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ted. Have a wonderful day.
0: Great. Well, it's time for us to head on over to page
3: two.
0: Over here on page two, I have uh, Steve McLaughlin with us, he's a Vice President of Data and Analytics Strategy at Blackbaud and best-selling author of Data-Driven Nonprofits. He brings 20-plus years of experience driving innovation with a broad range of companies government institutions and nonprofit organizations. And uh, Steve, this summer um, you're going to be a guest lecturer over at Columbia University. You, you have endless amounts of energy.
3: Something like that, I think. Uh, thanks for having me back on the show, Ted.
0: It's great to have you back here on the, the show. Well, let, let's start off with um, just a little bit of a, a, a brief, if you will, and we're going to post a link uh, for folks uh, to your book over on our Facebook page. Uh, facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. But tell us about data-driven nonprofits. Uh, Where did it come from and what does it do?
3: Sure. So I had spent years and years, you know, reading a lot of books about the use of data and and analytics and certainly a lot of firsthand experience with working with nonprofits and how they were using data or in some cases were not using data. And I really found that there wasn't a a go-to guide for nonprofits, when it came to trying to understand where could they start in the use of data, why would it be important. And so I spent a good 18 months doing a ton of research, talking to, you know, two dozen nonprofits uh, in a variety of countries with a variety of different um, types of organizations to really identify what is it that separates organizations who are successful in their use of data from those who, who oftentimes struggle.
0: One of the concepts that gets talked a lot about, um, and almost nobody really knows what it means, um, is this notion of big data. Um, what is big data? And, and, and Let's use that as a jumping off point to help our listeners today really begin understanding how they can become a data-driven nonprofit.
3: That's a great place to start. To your point, Ted, you know, big data has become a bit of a buzzword. A lot of people talk about it, although many people are very sort of unsure. Like, what exactly does that mean? And while there are a lot of technical definitions for what is big data, and most of them have to do with the technology that's being used and the types of data involved, when I think about the term big data, what I really believe it means is it's the analysis of data to extract value from that data, regardless of the size of the data set. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's not necessarily the how much data you have. It's about how much value is in that data. Um, and mm-hmm. and you know, I think one of the things that people sometimes get tripped up on is either we don't have enough data or we have too much data or Um, The kid who has the most data wins. (laughs) And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think what we found is organizations who are successful um, with the use of data really are focusing on what's valuable in there versus Mm -hmm. how much of this stuff do we have. And and I think it's, especially in the nonprofit sector, we have to have discussions around, you know, value and, and how do we drive value for organizations, especially when we look at, challenges around donor retention or engaging millennials or whatever it happens to be, um, data can really be a nonprofit professional's best friend when it keeps, comes to understanding, right. hey, what's going on right now and what can we do going forward?
0: Well, and, and it should be a nonprofit's best friend. But I think, and I'm so glad that you started off with a definition uh, or a sort of explanation of big data the way that you did, because I think just the, the very notion of big data makes it sound like, well, I should have lots of it. It's, it's very big. Um, and here I am, a small nonprofit, so maybe that means I'm on the outside um, looking in. And, and that's not the case at all. It's um, what does data tell about your organization? How do you learn more about yourself? And how do you tell the story of your organization um, through paying attention to data? And I think a lot of nonprofits are so, so you know, caught up in sort of the day-to-day activities that they don't step back and say, well, well, what are we able to measure? Um, and if we're able to measure that, what does that say about us? You know, how many clients are we providing service to? How do we provide service to them? You know, what, what is their, their, um, their income range? What are, you know, so it's, it's understanding data in a different way and looking at all those things that, that you may be used to measuring, but you only measure them to show how you were getting bigger um, or to prove that you were alive prove that you are doing something, but to take a step back, Steve, and this is why I'd like you to sort of maybe give some examples or to to help our listeners understand. It's taking all that information that maybe exists in an Excel spreadsheet or uh, gets pushed out in a report, but putting all those various different data sets together and saying, what does this say about us? What does it say right now? What does it say over time? And what does it indicate about the future?
3: Yeah, it's absolutely a good point. I mean, uh, obviously, I deal with technology on a a day-to-day basis, and technology is important, but technology isn't a substitute for what's your strategy and what you're trying to accomplish. And, again, what I find is whether it's trying to understand your annual giving program or your email campaign or your volunteer activities, data is the one thing that tells you the answer to a very important question, which is, is it working or not? Right, and, and we sort of want to know, is it working? Right, Is our engagement strategy working? Is that annual fund campaign on track of where we thought it needed to be relative to budget? Are the things that we're trying to do with major gift donors or engaging alumni or activists, whatever it happens to be, data is the thing that tells us um, if it's working or not. And, and so I do think it's important, regardless of the technology that's involved, that there's a mindset at the nonprofit of I want to know if it's working or not, and data is the thing that helps um, to inform me of that over time. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of there 's certainly different maturity levels. Some organizations are more data driven than others. But what I found, and I thought this was kind of interesting was you know I, I found that there's no one type of organization that has a monopoly on doing this well right there 's a tendency to think, well, oh. Maybe maybe healthcare organizations or higher education organizations, they're the ones who do this really well, but nobody else does. And what I found through the course of the research of the book and just talking to so many different organizations, many of which are, are profiled throughout the book, is I found large organizations who were successful. I found medium-sized organizations who were successful. I found small organizations who were successful. And I also found that it was possible to be successful across a range of missions, whether it was... Education, healthcare, care, uh, human services, environmental, um, or even brand new type of areas like a crisis text line where, you know, things that didn't exist a few years ago, um, organizations had an ability to be successful. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, how much value did they place on uh, understanding uh, the value of data, but also uh, a, a culture around wanting to know what's working and what's not. Mm -hmm.
0: And and pushing yourself to understand um, data in a different way. For instance, you know, I I think of an organization that I provided counsel to that the power of that, of the very nonprofit itself was its ability to be able to track um, intervention um, in a young person's life um, at age 11. Um, and that, that interaction um, and that intervention um, had a, a dramatic impact and they were able to measure uh, the impact on graduation rates for a particular high school. So being able to do that shows the impact that you have. Now they have been doing that work and they knew that you know, more kids were graduating and they had some statistics, but being able to tell that story. And being able to draw all of that together made all the difference in terms of their ability to show their impact, attract funders, and that's sort of what big data can do for a nonprofit if they start looking at the data that's right in front of them.
3: It's absolutely true, and part of this is using the data to to find things that you don't know um, versus just using data to confirm what you already thought was real, right? As you noted Mm – There's uh, a a definite tendency of people to say, um, I believe the answer to the question is A, B, C, and so I'm going to go find data that supports that the answer is A, B, C. (laughs) It's not really what, you know, you should be doing with the use of, of, you know, analytics. The example I talk about all the time is, you know, Walmart has petabytes of data. Uh, A petabyte is a million gigabytes. And when they look at petabytes and petabytes of data, what they found was, When a major storm comes through an area, there's one item that flies off the shelves um, in terms of sales, and it's strawberry Pop-Tarts. The sale of (laughs) strawberry Pop-Tarts are 7x the normal rate when a storm comes through. Now, if you'd asked a store manager or people who work there, they'd say water or bread or something. No one would have told you strawberry Pop-Tarts, right? You actually had to analyze the data to find this thing. and and I think that we find this time and time well, again in know the nonprofit about that, sector. If
0: I'm going down, I'm going to have Pop-Tarts with me. That's, you know.
3: Exactly. Well, you don't need power, right? <laughs> they don't go stale because they were never fresh to begin with. So Pop-Tarts are fantastic. <laughs> and just about no, every nonprofit has their own version of a nonprofit. As you noted, that organization found that when it came to um, people enrolled in the program, um, when they were age 11, if they were able to engage them, it, it greatly influenced their ability or on graduation rate and a lot of other things. Other programs have found things like, the, the thing that pops in the data is just a simple attendance, right? Did Were, were people attending the program on a regular basis, and that made the huge, that made the biggest difference as opposed to anything else and And we see this right, stuff right. all the time on, on giving, right? Um, when we look at annual giving, not major giving, but we just look at annual giving programs, um, there is something magical about year seven in an annual giving campaign. We find this this pattern all all again and again, which is the the time when a donor will make their first a thousand dollar gift to an organization as a part of an annual fund spikes in year seven, and there's something about that length of time across a wide range of organizations that you see that happen, right, and if you'd ask people around the office, if you did a survey, it's unlikely that anyone would ever tell you that that was when it would likely to occur, that you actually did have to analyze the data to find that, to find that
0: sort of hidden value that, that's hidden in the data somewhere. That's right. And that's, and that's really the, the key there is the, the hidden value that's in the data. And, and you mentioned earlier, and I, and I, don't, I don't think I'm going to differ an awful lot with you, but to a certain extent for, for our listeners, I would say a good place to start is to be gathering data to be able to prove the points that you thought were true, but to listen to the data to see if, in fact, you were right. Um, and, and what I find for a lot of nonprofits is, you know, the sort of – common held beliefs or you should give to us because we're good people or you should give to us because we help poor people or, or something of that sort, but, but they never really actually have gathered the data to look at the data to determine whether or not what they're saying is true. And, and I think you know, um, maybe the point that you were making is, don't look for the data points that only validate what you already know is true, but to gather the data points and learn about yourself what does it say? Is there something that maybe you don't do an awful lot of that sort of is is your Pop-Tarts, your strawberry Pop-Tarts? that That's really where the value is. Um, and so so going into it, asking the questions of, you know, what is it about our organization that's equal to strawberry Pop-Tarts?
3: I, th- I think it's that. I also think, you know, one of the things that I uncovered with a lot of the research and, and certainly my experience over the years is, there is the use of a lot of tribal knowledge uh, within nonprofit organizations. You know, you ask, well, wh- why, do you, why are you asking that amount? Why are you engaging this way? Why are you doing that? And the answer you'll get sometimes is, well, that's how we've always done it. Or, well, you know, uh, that's how we prefer to do things. What you often don't hear is, we did testing, we looked at our data, and we confirmed that, in fact, this is the optimal way to to do that, and I was always very curious, like why is why is the sector in general driven by a lot of this uh, the artfulness uh, of the tactics, right? And as it turns out, and I, and I address this pretty early on in the book, is um, a lot of this you can trace back to the early days of modern fundraising. There's two gentlemen, uh-huh. um, Charles Sumner Ward and Lyman Love Pierce, at the turn of the 1900s. And they literally invented most of the modern fundraising tactics that are used today, you know, uh, hiring a publicist, uh, getting uh, advertising funded from a corporate gift, getting a major gift pledge, limiting a campaign to a certain period of time. These are all things that Ward and Pierce um, created first back in 1905, and a lot of that's mm-hmm. just been copied over the years and decades without anyone asking well, do we have data to back up why we do it that way? You know, why was why was the campaign 60 days and not 30 days? Um, you know, how, many, how much money should you raise before you end the silent phase of a campaign and move into the public phase of a campaign? And, and as you know, tell a lot of that stuff is just, uh, it's tribal knowledge. Well, uh, this is what we've always done. Or, or when I was at my last organization, that's what we did there. Versus we have data and some evidence that suggests, no, you should do it this way and We've actually proven this right. out over a period of time through through testing
0: well and a lot of the data that's out there is actually re- reporting on what is done as and because campaigns are generally seen as uh, generally will be successful it's it's it's, it's to your point the, the data is validating what was already known rather than asking if that was the best way to approach it um, and yeah there there's, also, there's
3: also survivorship bias right so oftentimes right. it Conferences, events, webinars we only usually hear the success stories. <laughs> we usually only hear that's about right. the campaign that went really, really well, exceeded its goal, and was right. highly successful. It's almost like we should have a whole set of conference sessions around stuff that didn't work um that's because right. That's right. you know you would probably because learn, you learn you, from it, that.
0: exactly you'd learn
3: from exactly. that right,
0: yeah right. So, um yeah, but just, that's I'm certainly true at, I, I, I'm looking at the Blackbaud website right now, and there's uh, talk about data, big data, and just sort of serving that up in ways that are interesting. Um, I'm looking at your, your 50 fascinating philanthropy statistics. Um, and, and one of the ones that just grabbed my attention and uh, sort of challenging um, our listeners today is 74% is the percentage of constituent email addresses the average nonprofit is missing. So, yeah, so and that's the average. Right, that's the <laughs> average. Right. So, so in 2017, where you know, long since, or I guess this this data was taken in 2015, uh, but sort of long long since um, past the the whole will donors use email, will donors give a gift online argument has 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 been settled. Um, the average nonprofit still uh, has email addresses for uh, 26% of their Of their constituents Um, and what does that say about how serious you even have an online engagement?
3: It's that it also speaks to this idea around the value that we place on the health of our data and and you picked out that email statistic and that was for average organizations. What's interesting is even the best performing organizations in that in that research had only had email addresses for 43 percent of their file so mm-hmm. the the you know even the, worst, even the most
0: right
3: yeah even the most successful we're still missing email addresses on 43% of the file and and as you know email has been commercially used 20 years plus now so it's not That's like right. i That's could right. understand if if we were talking about you know instagram uh handles or more exotic forms of data or,
0: but or we, really, we see or this really happening all the time thing or really exotic things like uh, mobile technology. Um, 84% of nonprofits' donation landing pages are not optimized for mobile.
3: Yep, Today. when we know that last that, year yeah. in 2016, uh, 17% of online donations were made on a mobile device, and that was up from 9% just a few years ago. So if, any, if anything, you could argue that because consumer behavior becomes donor behavior, Donors are dragging nonprofits into the modern age
0: when it comes to technology,
3: right? Oh, that's you know,
0: absolutely and, true. Yeah, I mean, your donors, your, you know, for all of our listeners today, um, your donors are, are generally way ahead of where you are. Um, but the other thing that I think is very important, and this is where um, I think Blackbaud comes in, and certainly a, a book um, like Donor Driven Nonprofits really makes a strong case, is that the competition is only getting greater in the nonprofit sector? Yet a b- lot of nonprofits are, for whatever reason, not tooling up to engage that 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 new reality.
3: And a lot of it just has to do, again, with understanding that, that data is a is a very valuable asset that you can use, especially um, you know when it's either finding new donors or engaging existing donors. But even things, you know, um, the folks at Target Analytics, which is a division is a of Blackbaud, they did some research around address data. And by this would be a conservative estimate, but a conservative estimate from Target Analytics is that nonprofits waste about $21.8 million a year on wasted costs just because of bad address data. So we're not talking about email addresses and we're not talking about phone numbers. We're just talking bad address data. Um, and so, again, you know, what I found... Through the course of talking to so many organizations, is there was a common thread that that successful organizations placed a value on data, and that they put some some structure and some governance in place to do things like we will make sure that we're updating uh, address information on a quarterly basis, that we're constantly trying to improve the overall data health of of what we're dealing with, and that you could you could sense that it was a, a true. Commitment to doing that, um, and I understand the challenge. Like if you, it's you know the data sort of like a garden. If you've left your backyard go for a few weeks, that you know being out there and weeding and seeding is going to be painful the first time. But I think what you'd find is organizations who um, you know stay on top of it, it's just routine edging and trimming. It's not a whole lot of of relative work effort if you stay on top of it over time.
0: Well, and I think that's part of um, the, the, the point that your, your book is making is that this is not, you know, the, the use of data, the measuring of data um, is not something that you just sort of bolt onto the side of, uh, of your nonprofit and call it good. Um, it's something that becomes part of the DNA of what makes you successful, how you do your planning. Um, that, that that's how data actually Um, makes you a data-driven nonprofit. It's not because, oh, it's time to do the budget. Let's look at the data. Or, oh, we're going to do a strategic plan, so we ought to gather some data and see if we can validate the the notions that we already had. Um, But but it's actually looking at data sets um, and measuring yourself and learning about yourself on an ongoing basis.
3: Yeah, there's absolutely a a cultural element to this. And um, I spent a lot of time digging into that, and, and what I found certainly was true is that you can have the right technology, the right data, the right focus, the right people, but culture can make or break you on this. You know, there's sort of the, the Peter Drucker adage that, um, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, and it'll probably eat your strat- or data strategy for lunch, too, if you're not careful. Um, what I found, though, was and I think this is a a good sign, is that it turns out there's multiple culture types in the nonprofit sector who are able to be successful with data. So it's not like we're saying, you need to do all these five things on a checklist and another five things on a different checklist um, to be successful. What I found was different organizations succeed for, for different reasons. Um, And that organizations can emulate that in some ways. You know, for example, um, you know, in public broadcasting, there's a culture of sharing data, sharing data for the purposes of doing benchmarking. Um, A large public broadcasting station in Boston doesn't believe it competes with the large station in San Francisco. And for 20 years, they've been very open to wanting to share data. Now, that's a culture thing, because, Ted, you and I both know there are some organizations where the thought of sharing data... (laughs) doesn't exist. That's okay. Maybe you have a different culture type. And I found about seven different culture types along the way. Everything from people having a culture of testing, a culture of sharing, um, and then there are certainly some organizations out there who really have a very evolved sense of a culture of data. So organizations like a Charity Water, uh, a Crisis Text Line, uh, but even an example from Florida State University where You know, they have made a shift to being very data-driven, and it's across the culture. And I think, in a lot of ways, um, you know, again, you can have the right tools and techniques and and stuff like that, but culture is a huge driver, and it's important to identify where you fit in that that culture uh, piece of things.
0: Right, and that's that's such an important topic, Steve. We're going to take a a quick break, and when we come back, I'd like you to share with us uh, some of your insights into what surprised you most. Uh, about writing this book um, and then uh, make sure that we share some of the best practices of how can our listeners take the concepts of your book and start making them a reality for their organization and we will be right back.
4: Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today
0: grab your calendars. We just want to remind you that our final show of uh, the first part of the year is going to be on May 23rd before we go into our summer hiatus. Um, Memorial Day is just the next week uh, and then we will be coming back in September. So 12 noon on um, May 23rd uh, please join us for the final nonprofit coach show before the summer hiatus.
2: Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart.
0: And we're back here live with Steve McLaughlin, Vice President of Data and Analytics Strategy at Blackbaud.com. Uh, best-selling author of Data-Driven Nonprofits, which is our topic today. So, Steve, um, what surprised you most as you put this book together?
3: Well, I think there are a couple things. Um, one of the things that I, I learned very early on from, from talking to a wide range of organizations was the importance of them having champions at all levels of the organization. It's It's a bit cliche to talk about, you know, you need senior leadership, you need project sponsors, you need someone in the corner office driving the importance of data. And while that's true um, and and is helpful, what I found was organizations who were successful also had champions at all levels of the organization, that it wasn't enough that there was senior leadership support, but that you actually had people in different layers of the organization being a champion to drive data, and also um, that people understood that um, if their job was in analysis or donor uh, relations or uh, helping with major giving, that they understood there was a, a relationship between the work that they were doing and the other people in the organization that they were that they were trying to help. Um, mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, I think that's that's a positive. But there's a challenge there, right, um, that this isn't as simple as you saying we're going to be more donor-driven or, or data-driven and uh, we're going to make it in the mission statement and we're going to form a committee. Um, those things are That's unlikely right. to have the success that you want, What you really have are successes when you have people at all layers and levels of the organization being a champion to support it in, in a variety of different ways.
0: And asking those questions, building it into – meetings and reports and expectations that, um, that we are measuring things and that we make decisions based on the data that's available. And one of the things that I suggest um, is to make sure that nearly every um, part of an employee's uh, annual goals is measurable. That's not just subjective that somebody liked them or you managed to keep your job so you get a raise. Um, but these are the things that we expect you to do, and this is how it's going to be measured. Well, that says that, you know, obviously we have to collect the data if we're going to measure it. So, um, But it's also up front to the employee um, to say that these are the things that matter most because all of those things added up makes the entire organization successful.
3: Yeah, it's certainly true that what gets, you know, measured gets managed. Um, you can have too much of a good thing, though, right? You could uh... – create so many metrics that all you have are people managing to that. So there's a danger side. I think right. um, you can sure. overdo any of that, but it's absolutely that's, true. That's
0: important, to, that's important to, to, to bring out here. And I think that the, the point that, that you've been making is to measure what's real and measure what's important, but don't just measure for the sake of measuring.
3: It's that. The other thing that I found was that organizations who have, have – have, made more progress on being more data-driven, that data is much more a part of the day-to-day workings of the organization than not. And everything from, you know, there are posters in the break room that are talking about success that the organization has had, but but success against measurable goals. So someone's going in and get a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and they can't miss the poster that's saying, hey, we had... Uh, growth in this area, and this is why it's important, or things uh, that you start to see more and more of is the use of common places in an office uh, where there are monitors that display, you know, certain key performance indicators, uh, certain metrics that everyone knows are important to the organization, and then even going so far as, you know, there are some organizations who talk about the fact that they start the beginning of major meetings with a discussion about the data and the charts and the way things are trending before people get into offering their opinions and (laughs) their perspective, that they start with, let's look at the data first, and let's use that data to inform the discussion we want to have on a particular topic. And all of these things are just subtle little habits, but over time, those habits, those behaviors that's what turns into culture, right? The people just become used to, yeah, of course. I can't imagine we wouldn't start a meeting without looking at some information or some data. If, we're, if you're asking us to make a decision, I would hope we would. But, you know, over time, that stuff just becomes second nature. It's just part of what you do uh, without even really thinking about it anymore.
0: That's right. Yeah, and I'll give you, uh, give you an example of, um, there's also sort of a timing of at, at what intervals do you look at data so um, when I started five years ago if you can believe it here at CAF America um, you know we were you know, measuring against budget and measuring against various um, indicators on a monthly basis um, and what we found is that that the business is um, variable enough that you know one month everybody's feeling very happy and next month everybody's not and looking at it on a monthly basis was just so erratic uh, because of various variables of of how our donors interact with our donor advice fund that we took a look at the data and found that if we actually measure on a quarterly basis that it flattens out sort of those erratic um, the erratic nature of the the data and actually gives us a better view of whether or not we're trending uh, correctly against plan uh, or not and it's really made a Big deal of difference uh, in terms of how we're able to measure and manage um, by again taking a look at, at the data sets on a quarterly basis as opposed to measuring it on a monthly basis, and that might sound silly, but it's really made a big management uh, change. No, I think that's a great point. You know, not all things that are measured
3: aren't equal. Some are more equal than others, and and some things that you measure have a different uh, sort of time horizon or even half life. You know, if you think about you know, an email campaign. Well, we know statistically speaking that the vast majority of opens and clicks and actions that will happen on an email happen within the first 48 hours. So the time horizon on an email campaign is very, very short, right? You don't need to wait a month to find out did that email campaign work or not. Uh, A direct mail campaign, different time horizon. And so you need to sort of understand those mechanics of how, you know, you can be over over-measuring or, um, you know, there's sort of false precision there. If you're expecting – you want to look at something every week when it doesn't change enough for a week to make right. a, a big difference. I mean, I know, for example, you know, the, the Blackbot Index, which is something we've been publishing since 2010, we look at um, overall giving and online giving on a monthly basis. But in our methodology, we actually use an average of the past three months in the calculation, because even in the you know even when you look at 23 billion dollars in giving, there are spikes, you know uh, right. you know when you have natural disasters and other events. And we were very cognizant when we launched the index to try and insulate the index from moving too much based on those spikes. And so it's intentionally well,
0: that, the that average over a 30 day five. or 90
3: day period. Yeah,
0: exactly. So 90 days versus 30 days, same same thing that we found. Um, is that that's a truer measure and, and actually looking at that data um, then becomes actionable. And, and I think back, back to your point, it's just because you can measure it doesn't mean that the data is, is useful or, or actionable. And it's So can you give our, our listeners sort of some advice in terms of, so I have a lot of data, how do I know that it's good data, it's actionable data? How, how do I put the emphasis on the right things?
3: Well, certainly, I mean, you know, there are things I would make a recommendation on uh, sort of fundamentals of a data health program, which is, um, you know, updating address information on a quarterly basis, all that stuff is readily available, services out there to do national change of address, that you're doing things like deceased suppression, at least on an annual basis, and that you over time, you have a regime of trying to um, sort of uh, complete the data set. So things like, hey, we're really going to focus on email addresses, we're really going to focus on mobile phone numbers, but make it a a conscious decision. The other thing that I would suggest is um, that when you're trying to get started, I would avoid taking on a huge problem or a a huge topic or area that you're much better off picking a smaller problem. So big enough that if you found um, some answers or you solve some issues that people would care, but not so big that it gets bogged down in, in things that have nothing to do with data, right? Um, and that you time box that. I, I'm a big believer, find a project that you want to use data to help you make a decision on and tell yourself at the end of 30 days, we're going to make a decision um, and we're going to use data to inform that decision as opposed to opinion or, or gut instinct. And And I think what you'd find is if you start with one thing, and you you box yourself in on having to get to a decision. You'll learn some things. You'll get you'll build some habits, and then you take the next project, then the next project, then the next project, and before you know it, you're you're off and running. Um, I think you're much better off sort of baby stepping your way into it as opposed to we need to create a mission statement and a form a giant committee that uh, that focuses on data. I think that can be. Dangerous. I think you're much better off starting with small chunks and then moving from there to be successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, setting good habits.
3: Yeah, all you're doing is really just building habits and getting used to it. And then certainly it's important that you are bringing in people from across the organization. Um, you know, are you in, engaging with the finance department? I mean, I often find there are other people in the organization who are interested in data, too, and you need to seek out those people and, and make them your new friend in the organization. And so, right. you know, hey, going and meeting with the CFO or the controller or someone on the finance side, because certainly they're interested in the numbers, and getting them, getting their feedback on how things are going and how they'd like to see stuff presented. Uh, I think over time you build up sort of that coalition of supporters across the organization who um, who are there to support you. As again, the whole point is using data to inform those decisions as opposed to what we've always done or what someone's opinion is 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 preferable, you know, and certainly beats guessing. Well,
0: and if looking at the data or measuring data is seen as only a privileged activity, then it's it's not truly integrated into the DNA of the organization. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, data is not a
3: foreign object. Uh you know it's something that everyone should be using and it also should be something that people at all levels of the organization have not only the access to but feel mm-hmm. empowered to say i'm i'm using data to make a decision based on something regardless of their seniority within the organization and certainly you know we know um, you know, that that's important to, to driving success. And the, the other interesting thing I found in the book was, except for a few instances, the vast majority of these nonprofit professionals who are very successful with the use of data are not trained statisticians. They are not economists. Uh, what I found over and over again is the vast majority of these individuals um, are just curious. They are problem solvers. They like to know how things work. They might not understand how a regression analysis is done. They may not understand some advanced complexities around statistical modeling, but they have a mindset to, like, want to know, well, why does that work or why did that not work and how could I improve something? Um, now, certainly I, there are examples in the book of people who do have a data science background and really do understand how this stuff works, but it wasn't a necessary requirement to be successful. I mean, we I found people with... You know, psychology backgrounds, an arts program background, lots of different people with lots of different skill sets, and a, and a common denominator was they were naturally curious, they liked problem solving, and they wanted to do more at their organization. And you know, rather than bang their head against the wall, data became a way for them to know if something was was working or not, and that helped them uh, be more successful over time. That's right. That's right.
0: Well, and, and I guess. Part of that is not setting such a high bar that you can't use the data. Um, I, I think it goes back to you know my my note that this is not sort of a, a privileged class sort of thing, um, but that you should be measuring data that can be used. That that to your point, um, multiple levels and multiple de- departments or or staff people can look at that data and use it, but also use it. Um, uh, in a way that they can interpret it themselves. So you get more, more people looking at the same data sets to help draw conclusions rather than the data only being used in one way.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a tendency for organizations to collect a lot of stuff, and that's where it right. stops. They've collected it. Um, you know, I think you could go to an extreme and, and suggest that should you collect data that you're not planning to actually take action on? Like, ask you that question like why are we why are we collecting this if we're not going to do anything with it and And that's oftentimes a good place to start with organizations are trying to solve you know data clutter issues. We have all we have years and years of data, and we don't know if it's any good, and we don't know if we should keep collecting it. You know, the simple test is, is that piece of data you're collecting? Can you tell me today how you use it? To drive a decision or to take action on, and if you can't quickly tell, you know, answer that, maybe you st- stop collecting it. You know, if you if you can't find an actual reason or tie it to something, like why are you still collecting it, right? Why are you collecting t-shirt size? If if you don't run an right. event where t-shirts aren't being distributed, why do you want t-shirt size? <laughs> right. And what or, you may find is, well, the- years ago we collected it because someone wanted to collect it. We well, don't do anything with it.
0: That's right. Or collecting data to the point of paralysis. You know, we 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 have so much data, we don't know what to look at. And that that's what I was hoping that you could share is, you know, are there certain certain data sets that were early adopters or in new programs you found uh, to be more valuable or where do i go to look for the kind of data that's going to be actionable for my organization are are there are there norms in that area that that our listeners should be watching for
3: i mean th- there's not a shortage of data either publicly available or data that can be appended you know there's tons of stuff you you know if you're running advocacy programs you would want congressional district appended to your file, because otherwise (laughs) you're sort of guessing whether you should be focusing on particular donors. I think it starts with what's the question we want to answer? What's the problem we want to solve? Ask, start there, right? We want to improve donor retention. That's the problem we're trying to solve. Or we want to turn more volunteers into mentors, or we're trying to turn um, people who are engaging us on social media, we actually want them, to, we want them to attend a physical in-person event. I think if you start with that, then what you would say, okay, what data would I collect or have that would tell me whether or not I'm being successful with that? And, and I think there's a tendency, like you said, to want to collect lots of stuff or have an overwhelming amount of data when in reality um, – it's usually just a few things you really need to know what's happening. You know, you you, if you, you know, I've been on a plane quite a bit lately, and and I noticed that in the cockpit of an airplane, there's all these dials and gauges and switches. There's a lot going on there, but ultimately, the only thing that the pilot and the co-pilot care about is airspeed and altitude. Everything right. else so isn't, know, isn't as nearly as important. important. It's, it's right. knowing that's where right. to focus, and so I, I would say. There's a definite tendency to try and overmeasure, and so, I th- you know, if, if I'm a frontline fundraiser, the three things I really want to know about on a day-to-day basis are first-year donor retention, multi-year retention, and lifetime value. Are there five that, other things I, I could measure? Sure, could, but I don't yeah. need those right now, right?
0: Right. Well, that's what I was hoping that we could um, get to, and we've got about three minutes left, so what I wanted to is... Does this all boil down to, for the average nonprofit, sort of creating that management dashboard that says, okay, these are the three data sets or five data sets that I'm going to look at. We're gonna analyze those and see if those are actionable. And then challenge your assumptions and don't, don't assume that you got it right, but start somewhere.
3: I think so. I mean, I think at a macro view, you have three to five things you're measuring across the entire organization and and when you when you're having more senior meetings, senior level manager meetings, those are the 3 to 5 things that you focus on. You may dig in and ask for some additional information. And then certainly when you get into any uh, any program area, if, if you're in the marketing or online digital department, your set of 3 to 5 might be a subset of that, right? Like not overall giving but giving that's coming from digital channels. But but certainly right, right. don't don't create 20 things you want to measure because you'll just spend all your time trying to sort of make sense heads or tails. I think you'll find less is more, you know, focus on those things and use those metrics to ask questions like, well, you know, why is it we're doing better with retention this quarter than last quarter? What is it that we did differently? You know, data should not be used as a hammer. It should be a flashlight. (laughs) It should be used to say, Hey, what's happening here why is that happening? Let's dig into it, as opposed to
0: why aren't you doing a good job, or why is that not right. what you not said it was going to be? Gonna be. Yeah, it's, it, it, to your point, it's not meant to be punitive. It's, it's meant to be enlightening and, and help, as you said, flashlight, light the path to maybe a different uh, uh, approach. Steve, we are out of time. Can you please um, share with my listeners how they can reach you?
3: Uh, sure, you can reach me in lots of places. Uh, first, you can find Data Driven Nonprofits on Amazon or other places where books are sold these days. Uh, if you want to sign up for my weekly e-newsletter about uh, data-driven uh, happenings across the sector, that's at datadrivennonprofits.com. And I'm regularly blogging on the Blackbaud blog, npengage.com.
0: Terrific. And we've posted on our Facebook page Facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart, a link to that Amazon uh, book. And, Steve, thank you so much for being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach.
3: Thanks, Ted. Happy to come back anytime.
2: You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.